0: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification.
1: Looks like they have a different interface on this system than we're used to. That's okay. We don't mind. We can uh, roll with the punches as they say. Normally you get the three, two, one, and here it's just, oh, you're live. So uh, Mark Rashtuni obviously didn't do his uh, message today. They are uh, out of town and it's unknown whether I'll be doing my message on August 20th when I'm in Australia. Because until I look at the uh, time difference, I might be committing to be answering questions at 3 a.m. in the middle of my night. <laughs> but it's always possible, so we'll let everyone know at that point. I'm going to answer a couple of questions that uh, popped up uh, since last week. And uh, we'll move in terms of that. first question was posed on our Facebook thread in response to one of the posts that we made. And someone asked, well, what... What is the law of God? And our uh, editor felt that that was probably a leading question, and so he ended up ultimately pointing him to some material of ours, rather than directly answering it. And the man who posed the question didn't say, yeah, it is a leading question, but I don't know anything about Kelsey. So let's go ahead and uh, talk a little bit about that. What are, why is it a leading question? Because normally what happens is that someone's going to end up cherry-picking some particular ordinance of God's law and use that as a point of attack. Some folks have a whole list of them, a laundry list. And, of course, you have to cherry pick if you're going to make cherry pie. And it's cherry pie that the opponents of God's law are intent on uh, baking and then preparing as a way to uh, cast doubt and aspersions on the law of God. And and that's, of course, problematic. You don't see them grabbing Deuteronomy 22, 6, and 7, the least of the commandments, and holding that up for ridicule, which talks about what you do when you encounter a bird and mother bird and her eggs in a nest on the ground. Now think about that just for a moment. A vegan would object to the entire idea of saying it's okay to eat the eggs, but leave the mother alone. And other folks saying, well, if I'm hungry, I'm taking the mother and the eggs, you see. So the Bible's sitting there in the middle between two opposing positions that would be more than happy to criticize it and uh, attack the scriptures. So you, you are damned if you do, damned if you don't. God doesn't care what people think. God knows what's right. He refers to his own character and his justice and lays that out and shares it with us. So what happens when you do apply God's law? Do you get perfect justice now? <clears throat> the Quick answer is no, you don't. And it's not even promised in the law of God because it's a fallen world. You can have three or four alleged eyewitnesses and they can all collude together to perjure themselves and under biblical law, a execution or other judgment can take place based on the testimony of false witnesses. And we are rife with false witnesses. That's why Jesus Christ, unlike us, is termed it the true witness, the faithful and true. And we tend not to be. So in a fallen world, you already have the problem not only with lying and perjury of witnesses, but also in accuracy of recalling things in this order. So, What happens in this world when you have this situation where you don't have access to instant justice, poetic justice, as uh, Rastouni talked about it? In Spenserian England, the idea was, well, we have to rewrite the end of Shakespeare's King Lear because it doesn't have a happy ending, and we intend to enforce justice now in this world, not have to wait till after the last judgment for it to be cleared up. But the fact of the matter is that in Scripture... God is satisfied with uh, resolving all the things that are not resolved properly here. So it's our job to apply the law of God here, and then God, in essence, in rectifies anything that failed due to perjury or false witness and testimony. Uh, this is interesting because we actually have an appeal to this at several levels in Scripture. One, obviously, in Job, when he says, Even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And that's, that's a huge confession of faith on Job's part. Even if things and I'm innocent, he's proclaiming his innocence. Even though God kills me, I'm still going to trust him on this stuff, because God's going to straighten everything out. And of course, temporarily, that is in this world, God did straighten it out by and large for Job at the end of the chapter of the book you know, of Job. But more to the point, what happens with folks that seem to escape justice here and now? We think about uh, murderous tyrants and mass murderers who basically commit suicide at the end, and there's no apparent comeuppance. Or they just die peaceably in their sleep. They seem to evade judgment. And we sit there and we rack our brains and say, how is it that they got away? Did they get away is the question. Isaiah 28 answers this question very well, starting at the 16th chapter. God says that he's going to disannul the, uh, his opponent's uh, covenant with death and with hell. You see, what happens is people make this covenant with death. Death can hide me from the consequences of human justice, and I'll be safe and sound. And once I'm in the grave, safely in the grave, there's safety. You know, there's, I don't have to answer for anything. And Isaiah 28:16 following says, that's not true. God will overflow your hiding place and disannul your covenant with death and with Hades. It turns it to nothing. So your agreement with death is a safe place. Here, I'm going, to, I'm going to need a long-term lease here down in the grave. And God basically breaks the lease and pulls you back out in front of him, in front of his white throne judgment. And then you will have justice and judgment there. So our obligation now is to do what God requires, knowing that God will correct all things that have gone wrong. The beheading of John the Baptist will be dealt with properly, etc., etc., So we need not worry or concern ourselves about absolute perfect justice now. We can't have it in a fallen world. That said, our goal is godliness, and we need to be aware that the law of God must always be taught and defended as a whole. That's another reason why our uh, editor who took that question was unwilling to answer, uh, at least to a leading question, someone who really may not have been serious about the question, what is the law of God? Because basically you have to say it's all these 613 commandments taken as a, integrated whole not piecemeal because what then happens is that the other person is going to try to piecemeal it he's going to snip out a piece and then hold this up to ridicule that cherry picking to make his cherry pie and we have to then object and say no that isn't so because such and so i wrote an article uh, answers to tough questions about christian reconstruction some time back in say 2007 or so back then um, basically, it was the Bay Area atheists had uh, posed a series of questions that they wanted us to answer, uh, sent to Kelsey, and can you answer these questions about God and justice and things in this order? What would a, a world look like under God's law? And they promised that they would publish our response. And so I wrote the response, and it basically defied all their expectations of an answer, and yet still upheld the law of God in its entirety, which probably was the thing that bothered them the most. And Are you surprised to find out that they did not publish it, that we ended up publishing it? Because they wouldn't. So it ended up being a Chalcedon article, uh, as opposed to something appearing in the Bay Area Atheist Association's own organs of publication. Uh, That kind of tells us a little bit about their ideas about fair play. What they wanted was sound bites and quotes that they could cherry pick. And they didn't get it out of anyone over here at Chalcedon, because we defended the law of God in its totality and show that it, and you cannot just uh, take a piece and detach it and apply it. It must be part of an entire whole. And that's why folks like Bonson and Van Til and others say it's always important. Thank you for that, Chuck. Uh, Chuck Rensford put up the, uh, the article. For those who are interested and haven't read it, it is worth reading, to see that there's a whole worldview built into that, and you can't just uh, do a shallow exposition of the law of God. These are deep, marvelous things. That's why there's this amazing comment in Hosea 8:12 about Ephraim. Uh, God basically says, uh, "I've shown Ephraim the wonderful things out of my law, but they were esteemed by him a strange thing." And Ephraim, of course, thought they were strange because he wasn't integrating them all into a totality, and he was also coming at it with humanistic presuppositions. And this will kill you every single time. So. All that to say, the law of God always to be uh, treated as an integrated whole, no peace sliced out from any other, and then it makes coherent sense. And that's the way it's presented in that article, Answers to Tough Questions about Christian Reconstruction. That's how competent theonomists would defend it. Bonson said it always has to be defended whole, not piecemeal. The faith as an entirety, when he did uh, debates with atheists, and also theonomy specifically. That doesn't mean that there's not value in each individual commandment, because each one's important. The statutes and testimonies and commandments, and, and uh, precepts of the Lord, all have value, and they all shed light. But they shed light because they're part of a whole, which reflects the character of God for us today. Again, you do not get perfect justice when you apply the law of God because of men. Right? We had this beautiful covenant that God made. And we read in Hebrews, finding fault with them, he had to find place for a new covenant because the old had failed, because it was powerless. And so a new covenant where the law of God is written in the mind and the heart of the man to obtain spontaneous obedience was required, a failure on man's part. So even if God gives us this great blueprint, uh, we're inclined to still mangle it, right? That does not that actually intensifies our uh, culpability. It doesn't get us off the hook. Saying, "Well, you know, everyone mangles the law of God. It's okay. You know, everyone mangles the law of God, and we're all going to be called on account because that's the one standard by which everyone will be judged. Yeah, and especially Christians in terms of your attitude to the least of the commandments, which is why I mentioned that cheap little Deuteronomy twenty-two six and seven, and the fact that even presenting that one commandment, you have people on both sides of the aisle. Objecting. Vegans saying, you shouldn't eat the eggs at all. Others saying, why not eat the mommy and, the, and the, uh, the the eggs? You're hungry. right? Pragmatic, utilitarian approach to things. And here's God in the middle saying, I'm going to protect the species and accommodate the needs of the hungry man. Interesting, isn't it? God always seems to strike this at the balance when men's views are unbalanced. A second question that popped up um, prior to today was how do we apply this Matthew 18? Is it really a one-two-three rocket from one step to the other in absolute chronological sequence in the sense that if I've gone to you once, say at 9 a.m., I can bring someone else at 9.15, and then at 9.30 we're going to the church. In other words, in the span of 30 minutes, we've satisfied all the requirements of Matthew 18. Is this the essence of what Matthew 18 is teaching? Or is it something else entirely? Is it rather that there's a mechanism by which you ultimately get to the Church, to tell it to the Church, as the phrase goes in Scripture, Uh, and then the Church deals with it, but is it a prolonged process? Is it a time where the uh, the repentance at level one is extended? For example, Luke 18, we never talk about Luke 18, always Matthew 18, but Luke 18 here, we have this woman going one-on-one continually to the evil magistrate who fears neither God nor man. But she's going one-on-one. She's only staying at level one, but she achieves her goal. Interestingly enough, Matthew Henry brings out this whole point. Why do we do this level one anyway in the first place? The reason is that we are protecting the reputation of the person who has sinned us, and we want to recover them as a brother or sister. See, The goal is that at all points, and therefore we should be willing to go that 70 times 7 to get there. But we don't. We're going to have flame wars on Facebook and whatnot. Uh, and that's that's going to be uh, disastrous. I see your question, Aiden. I'll finish, see if I can get to that shortly as soon as I finish this little exposition here. So here's another example of not going to Matthew 1, or Matthew uh, first step route continually. We have Jesus saying in uh, Revelation 2 about Jezebel, he says, I gave her space to repent. Now that's an interesting phrase, right? I gave her space to repent, I gave her time. And again, this follows through with what Matthew Henry is. The time is, is given as an act of grace on your part to to recover your brother and and, and have him back as your brother, and to, and to rectify relations that are strained. But we don't go to we don't go to that level. We don't give people the space to repent. We move much more quickly to the legislative kill, the juridical kill. And I think there's no reason that we can do, have to do that. And I think it shows impatience on our part. And patience is. Believe it or not, a Christian virtue is certainly mentioned throughout Scripture. So I think a more patient application of Matthew 18 is warranted. The second you go bring witnesses, now the person uh, realizes that the matter is known, to quote what Moses thought was when someone mentioned the Egyptian buried in the sand. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. And and so uh, it's not a a private matter anymore. At that point, it's become somewhat more public and risks even be broader public. And so you want to take it very carefully when you go to that step. If it's needful, you go there. But be sure it's needful to go there. Give them space to repent. Work with your brothers and sisters. Move in terms of more patience and not less patience. So we don't have this instant knee-jerk reaction that says, we're going to implement Matthew 18 right away to do X, Y, or Z. It might be valid for Y, but it might not be valid for X and Z, uh, in, in the sense that we've not exhibited the Christian virtue of patience, uh, and unless it's a situation where the brother is in open violation of something that is, you know, bordering on uh, most severe apostasy, uh, then perhaps swiftness definitely would be uh, in order. But if it's an offense between you, if, uh, yes, your brother offended you, right? Uh, then it, we we take it up in terms of other principles, including this interesting verse in Proverbs: "It's the glory of a man to overlook an offense." We sometimes lose that in sight of the things. Okay, so all that to say, Matthew 18, valid principle, apply it in a good way. Like we said last week, the law of God is good if used lawfully. The Matthew 18 principle is used when it's used in terms of its purpose, which is to recover your brother, and that means minimizing the public broadcasting of the offense in the first place. And as Matthew Henry lays out, better than probably anybody, this is what recovers your brother, that you saw fit to keep it under wraps and work with him one-on-one. And that restores community in a way that going to the witnesses and going to the church does not. At that point, you've kind of lost all the benefit of recovering your brother, and more severe means are going to be used. They'll be digging in of heels, given human nature, and it's going to be tougher to get there. And we certainly have these sanctions in the church, specifically for those tough cases, but make sure it's a tough case, tough nut to crack, uh, before we go to the next level. Escalate when it's right to do it. Look for the right time to do it. Like I said, you don't want to go one-on-one at 9 a.m., several-on-one at 9.15, thir- at 9.30, we we're are the excommunication proceedings. Uh, where was the space to repent? That doesn't sound like a lot. Jesus seemed to f- deal a lot with Jezebel in that church, who, by the way, it must interest you, that some of the manuscripts indicate thy wife Jezebel, not that woman Jezebel, but thy wife Jezebel. It's the angel's wife, the pastor's wife, that is the problem. Boy, is that an entire section of uh, Scripture that can open up a can of worms, that uh, the pastor was tolerating the conduct of his own wife uh, that was uh, wreaking havoc in the churches. All right, so getting to Aidan's question, what is the biblical standard of unity, disunity between believers? Well, there's two different kinds of standards, aren't there? There's the ecclesiastical standards, which are several levels removed from, from Scripture, And then there's the requirements in Scripture. We see, for example, Warfield, when he discussed the polemics of infant salvation, he goes toe-to-toe with Augustus H. Strong, uh, who had a huge laundry list of evils of infant baptism. And Warfield said, well, that's quite a list. Let's go through them one at a time. And by the time Warfield has sifted all the evidence, we find that the case that Strong made is not Uh, as strong, you know, pun intended, as strong thought it was. Uh, And Warfield has some very profound things to say in favor of the opposing position. So how does Warfield conclude this discussion between him and a Baptist scholar who had written the systematic theology in which these discussions and elsewhere can be found? He said, obviously, they think we're doing something that we shouldn't be doing, and we believe that they are omitting an ordinance at the Lord's house. He says, nonetheless, I should not withdraw the right hand of fellowship on this account. So here we see that the pedo-baptism, baptism question, in Warfield's view, is not a fellowship breaker. I will not withdraw the right hand of fellowship. Today it is. Most Facebook threads uh, exhibit some of this. Now some of them are friendly and they have a uh, cold war going on, if you will, between the two positions. Uh, and folks shifting from one to the other and other folks saying, "Oh no, repent! You don't, 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 don't uh, drink that Kool-Aid over there with the Credo Baptists or the Pado Baptists," and so there seems to be some movement back and forth. So uh, again, we don't want to have uh, union; we want to have unity, and that unity is to be an organic one in the faith. And we talk about again this famous phrase, which suffers from the fact it has no content. The famous phrase is, "In essentials, unity; in non-essentials." liberty, in all things charity. So what are the essentials? Uh, how, many, how far back in the creeds do you have to go? You know, Some people say, well, Chalcedon, that's a great creed to, to use, and you lose all your Eastern Orthodox folks. Not only for that, but for other reasons. Uh, you go farther back, you finally end up at the, the Apostles' Creed. Is that adequate, or can you have a heretic holding to the Apostles' Creed and still creating havoc with other aspects of the Godhead? And that's why Chalcedon at 451 AD is a relatively decent starting point, insofar as the Christological question was resolved there. Uh, and of course, I think Pelagianism is a, is a huge issue. Uh, that would be a big problem because uh, there are certain aspects of the faith that I think are non-negotiable, and pure Pelagianism uh, is an issue. I do not think it's important how great a Christian Pelagius was. That is not the issue. The issue is specifically the implications of his theology, his teaching. You know, it's a lot of great-looking great guys can propagate errors from their mouth. That includes me, by the way. Not that I'm a great guy, but nonetheless, the upshot is you know, one must be ever vigilant. But I say, if you if you see something that is, uh, and that's the you have these different creeds going on in confessions. Someone says, "I'm a 1689 London confession," or well, "I'm a Westminster guy," Well, which revision, 1903. So you see we have all these divisions that are potentially possible uh, as we split finer and finer. All we can say is that ultimately there will be doctrinal unity. It is coming. <laughs> well, there's an editorial comment for you, folks, if you just cat it. You are a great guy from our perspective. Of course, there's a, um, a reason that some people might think that. Uh, and here's the big issue. Flattery can get you everywhere in many circles. When I uh, did this series of lectures on the imperatives of Scripture, it uh, was to be a 151 lecture series, each one about an hour. I think I got three-quarters of the way through it. I ended up spending three of the lectures on flattery and the impact it has on people and what the Scriptures have to say about it. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a lot to be said about the, uh, the effects of it. Not that I'm going to accuse uh, my tech person of flattering me, but simply pointing out, Uh, Be mindful that it's ever-present. It's present uh, usually as a trap, even in Facebook discussions, for example. Now, why do I mention Facebook discussions? Because we're on Facebook Live. So uh, it's certainly within my purview to draw attention to the environment around us here in the Facebook world. It's a little bit of a micro-universe where we get to share with everybody. So for that, I'm grateful for the opportunity. And uh, we, we always pray beforehand that uh, edifying things would come of it and liberating things too, because the truth will always uh, will set you free right? So uh, do we have any other questions pending? Ah, you were describing orthodox standards. What about abolitionists who hold to orthopraxic standards? Uh, I guess the reason that you might be mentioning orthopraxis is the issue of um, that there's two aspects, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, and they often end up being pitted against each other. In other words, we see a conflict of interest between the two. These things ought not to be. Uh, No, they are. The fact of this matter is we're living in an era. Normally we have a lot of orthodoxy and very little orthopraxis. We have people hearing the word and not doing it. Now we have the issue of uh, folks that are doing the word but are accused of not hearing it <laughs> in the sense of uh, not coming under a government ABC of local church XYZ, for example. Warfield made this comment, and we've quoted it, I think this will be our third time, and this is our eighth Q&A. Uh, you cannot split rotten wood, one, and when he made that comment he meant to say, as as Machen pointed out, who we who shared that comment with, uh, he he said, it was so dead in the churches that spiritual life would be found outside the institutional church, and that's quite an indictment of institutional churches. And it persists in many respects to this day. The massive amount of local churches today are very much anti-law, and they might be pro-gospel, but the gospel, as a consequence of that, is is uh, is mangled. So when abolitionists come along. They come on strong because they are opposed to murder. Imagine them coming on strong against something like that. Why would they bother with the trivial thing like murder of inborn babies, right? But the point is that they're saying the, what we've been doing since Roe v. Wade has not worked. So this pragmatic argument is self refuting when you look at it. So, and we can see it here in Texas where I live where folks that are head of the pro-life uh, community do everything they can to head off anything sounding abolitionist. They want to stop those particular bills dead in their tracks on various pretexts. Uh, and when a bill actually has teeth in it and gets through and it promises to remove and abolish abortion, uh, there's objections to it, and everyone runs... You know, we've seen the same thing, say, in the Southern Baptist Convention, when Bruce Short would want to introduce that resolution saying, let's pull all the Baptist kids out of the public schools. And they run down to the to the podium and to block the thing from being coming to a vote, et cetera. Right? He's a bomb thrower. He's going to go in there and say, "This is what we ought to do," and it's a failure of nerve. I think every year they get closer and closer to actually going that direction. But why the long wait? Why are we not allowing these this reform to take place? Right? And, and so, there's several different answers to that. The one that comes to mind, though it's not charitable to say it, is there's some cowardice. One. Two, this is a problem that's laid out in Hosea 4.8, right? Uh, the leaders, they eat up the sins of my people. What's that mean? It means insofar as uh, we don't correct the course because we're making money at it. Why would I kick over my rice bowl when I have a good thing going? And so a long run, in other words, I'm not interested in solving the problem. I'm interested in perpetuating the problem. Now I'm potentially uh, impugning motives, right? I can only look at the actions and say the upshot is the consequences of going the, the incremental route as it's now been taught taught, and pushed aggressively. Aggressive incrementalism, can you imagine there's a such a thing? Uh, aggressive incrementalism uh, is, is pushed at this point. And, and it, it basically is pulling in our horns and they're defending this very, very, very strongly. And I think that's inappropriate. I think we need to be more decisive. Now, I don't agree with every single scripture that sup- allegedly supports abolitionism, and neither did Dr. Rush do any. But I think in principle it is sound, and I support the idea of the going straight to the course. Uh, introduce legislation that declares the murder to be a murder and not to hide it, uh, and, and uh, sugarcoat sin. We don't want to have the situation where Isaiah 4-8 applies where the uh, leaders Christian leaders are eating up the sins of the people are getting rich off the people persisting in sin by not correcting it and doing what's required in this day and age for these problems which are serious problems uh, Dennis Peacock back in 2010 in Denver he lectured and said you know well, um, we've lost 20% of our population to that would have been here but is not due to the presence of uh, abortion in our midst so who's going to you know, what, what are we doing? We're slaughtering ourselves, in effect. Who's going to stop the slaughter? Are we going to do uh, slaughter stop incrementally, or are we going to go um, more pedal to the metal? Uh, when I've discussed this question way back when uh, in a Chalcedon article, incrementalism versus um, whatever, idealist, I guess you'd call it, idealism, more ideal approach, I said they both have something to say uh, if, but do, are you actually making incremental progress? That's the question. I'm um, not seeing it. Regulating what the, how you dispose of the remains of the dead doesn't look like progress to me. <laughs> it looks like we are whitewashing the wall. And this is a phrase from Ezekiel 14, where he says, you know, you built up what, this wall and you and whitewashed it to make it look great, but God's going to uh, discover, which means, un- that's King James' language, discover means uncover, remove the covering of this wall and remove the whitewashing and expose its foundations and prove that it was a corrupt structure from the start and was going to implode on itself from the get-go, notwithstanding all the whitewashing. So we have to at least speak with some moral authority in this area. It doesn't mean that everyone who supports pro-life is going to fall into the category of saying, well, I want to eat up the sins of God's people. But there's simply, yeah, there it is, purists, incrementalism versus purists. Again, I might change my view on a couple of nuanced points in here insofar as how the argument has developed recently. We'll actually be publishing in the very uh, next Faith for All of Life, article by Reverend Pastor Peter Allison, uh, north of Houston he lives, and uh, he's had a part to play in some of the Texas legislative actions related to abolitionism, and we think what he had to say is very important, we'll be publishing that. I think you'll find it very, very valuable. It'll be the July-August issue, uh, which probably will come out in first week of September or so at the rate we're going, but we'll try to get back on track by end of year. Uh, we have a lot of uh, new articles coming in that allow us to do that. Uh, here's a question from the website. What do you think about arranged marriages? Do you think there's a place for that today? It'd be more helpful to know who asked that question because certain folks, the, the uh, we don't actually get what I would call naked, neutral questions, we have folks with an axe to grind one way or the other. And what? And sometimes people pose these questions. We've had maybe a quarter of them coming in since we started these Q&As with someone who has an axe to grind and wants to see what Calcene is going to say. Are they going to endorse my position or are they going to reject it? Are they going to soft-pedal somewhere in the middle? Everyone wants to know. Uh, and maybe they can say, well, I can discredit Calcene based on their answer because I'm going to have a list of verses that are going to uh, refute them. And, they're going, and But we don't get that full interaction, you see. So I'm okay with it if we're going to have a complete interaction on the point. Uh, and usually what happens with this arranged marriage question is the following. It has to do with what's authoritative in Scripture. Now, Calvin's view is that the 613 laws of God are authoritative. They can bind the conscience. There's another point of view... Which says that's not actually adequate. You need to use all the examples of Old and New Testament and apply those. Those are no less binding in this new position. I don't know how new it is, but it certainly it has a, a track record, a history, and a legacy. And their view is you can bind the conscience and require things based on examples. First uh, Corinthians 10:31 does say that you know, all these things were in samples unto us. But the examples all given there, or in samples in the King James, were bad things, <laughs> uh, they're warnings to us. And, and so the ones that he listed are exactly that, uh, not good things. Not, so we could justify all sorts of practices based on example. Uh, and then we have to rush in and clean house with various morals and broomsticks to try to clean up bad examples in Scripture. Because our only example is supposed to be Christ. Now you can say Christ didn't never got married. So how does that related to the question? Uh, but the point is, binding to the conscience. So what is an arranged marriage? Uh, it means that the parents have now uh, put the the uh, new family together on their uh, authority as parents to do so, and they are now binding the and so, uh, the, and we have these examples. For example, uh, <laughs> the. Uh, when one of the patriarchs sends out uh, a servant to go find a wife for his son, case in point. Uh, Is that the example that we are to follow or is there something more to it? Uh, Do we have uh, more liberty than is indicated by the example?
0: Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com.
1: So I think what comes to bear here is the value of those Old Testament examples. Are they the guide, the guide, not a guide or a potential source of wisdom? They can potentially be a source of wisdom, right? I mean, there's certainly enough evidence in Proverbs to cast some positive light backward on some of the examples. But what happens is that instead of a nuanced view, we get all the examples of the Old Testament are good. We should adopt them all, including this question of the arranged marriage. And here's some examples of that. So uh, I, would, uh, I would object that the conscience is bound by those examples. Can it be a great marriage? Can it be a successful marriage if it's arranged? Well, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Uh, there's the par- attempt on the um, parents' part to try to be covenantally faithful. But the question then could be raised, to what extent is this simply um, an unbiblical level of control? That, in other words, a, a liberty in Scripture is being potentially trampled upon. Uh, that doesn't, and there are marriages in Scripture that were not arranged, too. So. It's not as if it's uh, all or nothing in terms of this principle. You see, So, a lot to be said on these questions. Uh, again, we have to apply the law of God lawfully, and those examples are not technically in the law of God insofar as they are not imperatives. That's why I mentioned this uh, class, Rudiment Center of Perfection, that I was teaching back in the early 90s um, <clears throat> in California, and the premise was, what are the moral imperatives of Scripture? And I figured there were 151 classes or lessons that could be had in this area. And I set forth where you shall or shall not. And uh, we don't have this issue with the question of the arranged marriage. So if anything, this is an area of liberty. And that liberty, I think, probably would extend uh, to the people who are going to get married as much as to the parents. I think uh, when we go into the case of the examples and justify the practice there, we run aground and are going beyond the Scripture, even though we're quoting Scripture. But quoting Scripture in a way that I think does not carry moral you know, ultimate moral authority. It is rather human examples that are being lifted up to that level. Uh, if there's more to be said on that point, I'd be glad to take follow-up questions. But I think I've just beaten uh, that into the ground, uh, insofar as the core principles behind the question. And if there is a place for it today, it would be in terms of uh, liberty under God's law, and I mean the commandments of God's law, not the examples of the Old Testament. Uh, The examples of the Old Testament, like I said, when presented as such by Paul, um, all of them look to be negative examples. Uh, There's a few positive ones, uh, but not in respect to this particular matter. Not in respect to arranged marriages. Just more generically, like Abraham's willingness to give up his son or looking for a city that hath foundations and things in this order. Uh, Moses, you know, spurning the wisdom of Egypt and things on this order. Those are held up specifically as things to emulate, but we don't have emulation with respect to their marital policy for their kids. Okay. Oh, Justin's here. Good to see you, Justin. Do we have any other... Uh, qu- oh, see now. Another from the website. You've talked about the poor tithe. What about the rejoicing tithe? What is the application today? Well, uh, I usually treat this more lightly because uh, I call it the Christian vacation, the mandatory vacation. What an interesting thing that God mandates uh, time out with you and your family and even your extended family to rejoice before the Lord. Uh, It's part of, in essence, it's kind of an extension of the Sabbath principle, but it capitalizes, if you will, that uh, um, joy to be had before the Lord. And it encapsulates that. And I don't know how well uh, Israel did this, but it seems to me that a, a community that is big on the rejoicing tithe <laughs> will look f- won't look will look for the joy anywhere else because they're getting everything um, with God's blessing on it heaped up to them in, uh, in going down that direction. The beauty of it is you have tremendous liberty of how to apply it. Uh, uh, so the only dispute there is, can Christians go to Disney World or something on like this order? Is that going to qualify? Well, the guys, every family to it themselves, make sure it's before the Lord. Uh, we're not, not here to attack uh, Disney World. Uh, God's going to destroy everything that's not rooted up anyway. So it's in the best interest of those facilities finally to see the light and, uh, and to prosper in terms of God's law. Uh, we can certainly be a witness to that. But the upshot is for the rejoicing tithe, uh, The the person that gets hurt when you don't observe the rejoicing tithe is yourself and your family. When you don't observe the poor tithe, the person that gets hurt is someone else. And God takes notice of that. There's no indication in Scripture that failure to keep the rejoicing tithe does anything other than harm yourself. But when you harm the poor by not keeping the poor tithe, God says, Aha, you're grinding the faces of the poor, and I'm going to grind you back. And so the culture that uh, deprives the poor of what God has provided them will pay a price. And so it's best to pay that because there are sanctions that God levels providentially over us uh, for failing to keep the poor tithe. Not apparent, no apparent sanctions for not for failing to keep the rejoicing tithe. But it does show that you have a very crabbed outlook on life if we're not keeping the rejoicing tithe. We're saying tithing is gone. We don't need that. We have just we have Jesus, and yet here's this entire tithe set aside to rejoice before the Lord, including Jesus, my Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and so our sense of joy. Hey, Justin, uh, hello to you or howdy from Texas. Our sense of joy uh, is minimal. We get caught up in the um, the rat race, if you will. Not that Christian vocation is a rat race, but there's a sense in which there is work of the sweat of the brow and a rejoicing tithe is there to create an option or rather a, a place where God refreshes us. Seasons of refreshing come to us through the Lord when we rejoice before him which pleases him and edifies and builds us up. So why would we not obey the rejoicing tithe? Priscilla Munoz asks what are some recommendations you would give to a couple who are asking for your counsel before marriage? What should they be doing, reading, discussing before marrying? Well, <laughs> the pat answer is, have both of them read through Institutes Volume 1? Because if they have, and they're in general agreement with it, I think there are a lot of blessings to be had for that marriage. Simply because you're on the same page on the things that are going to matter uh, in terms of the application of the Word of God to their lives. So, uh, it's not as if I'm going to say, well, here's this book by the Wheats about uh, marital intimacy, and this is the one to go for, uh, by default almost, because no one else was writing about this back in the day, in the 70s. But, you know, that book is problematic in many respects. It has huge antinomian streaks in it. So, we don't see a lot of strong theonomic discussions in specific about these matters. So, it. Nowadays, I think it makes sense to go to uh, your spiritual leadership, whoever that might be. If it's church, great. If you have to go beyond your church for it, that's, that's okay, too, because God has blessed us with the folks that understand the Word of God in its entirety and how to apply it, and ask the specific questions you might have, and, and see if there's warnings and caveats that might be uh, put forward, things to look out for prior to uh, um, marriage, because there are certain things that, once you're married, are not, not going to be so easy to resolve better to go into that with your eyes wide open and understanding everything, not by a pig and a poke. This interestingly raises a question about um, intercultural marriages, which was the kind of marriage that Dr. Rushtoni had an objection to, and his objection was premised on an real, uh, actual real-world example. Most people say, ah, see, he's opposed to interracial marriages. This is not the case. What he opposed was an intercultural marriage where the respective spouses could not read the cultural cues and understand them from the other side. And the example he gave was that of the World War II war brides from Japan. The Americans who went over there said, wow, this is a very submissive woman. Look at all her mannerisms. She's the lady for me. She fits my idea of a perfect wife. And they get married, come back to the States, and boom, the marriage is a disaster because that's not the real woman. She was just following through with the external uh, cultural uh, application of how it works in Japanese culture. And those cues were not readable by someone outside that culture. He did not know what he was getting when he married her. He thought he knew, but he did not know. So he did not have this commonality of cultural uh, understanding. If you can bridge that gap and understand the cues and know what you are getting when you marry Jane or uh, Emily or whatever, And and they are a true known quantity to you, uh, and there's no mystery, no cultural um, face, if you will, because Japan is known for being a face culture, a different face that's being presented to you than the real person. Now, it's possible, of course, that people can still be deceived, uh, even if you're in the same culture, but you don't want to compound that issue if you can't even read the cues. So, read the cues and know your person that you're going to be marrying, because uh, this comes into the dowry principle. I think uh, Andrea Schwartz has mentioned it, and so has Dr. Rushtuni. If you needed to put together so many years of labor before you could marry somebody, then that caused the husband, prospective husband, to take a good, hard look at the potential wife, saying, am I willing to put in seven years of work for her? And this certainly happened in Jacob's case. He did it twice. He worked seven years, and behold, it was Leah on the next morning. Oh, no. Another seven years to marry Rachel, but he thought she was worth the 14 years. So the, the husbands need to be aware of the, those principles. Uh, is she worth it to me? Ah, well, I'd love to do this. Let me take another sip, hydrate a little. Actually, this is going to be an interesting test of how well I can speak eight lectures in Australia in a week and a half. Uh, if I get hoarse, it's going to be a problem. So these Q&As have allowed me to strengthen my voice a bit. <clears throat> Share some of your thoughts on the new release of the three-volume set An Informed Faith. Oh, they're a beautiful set of books, much needed. They are the position papers of R.J. Rushdoony, and they are back from the printer and will soon be released to you. Uh, and they're an amazing resource because we have them all in one place, three places, but three volumes because we want to we wanted to split them up by topics. So you can get all the things on history, on politics, on economics, medicine, even things on this order, uh, whatever it might be, uh, theology, ecclesiology. Dr. Rushduni's position papers on these, and I wrote the foreword to it to point out that when you when you, when he was putting out these position papers, he was staking out la, uh, real estate for Christ each time. He would say, "I'm taking this for Christ. This is the Christian position on this. this is the biblical position." Now. Is it always perfect? We don't think that every single one of them is perfect, but no one's done anything like it. And so they are tremendously powerful starting points to build on. And in some respects, a few of them obviously are definitive. People are going to come back and say, he nailed it. Other times they say, he got most of it, but no one even else delved into these issues until he did. And it has an enormous set of indices in it. That's a huge thing, because the original of this, which was incomplete, was the big roots of reconstruction, that massive volume, 1194 pages, uh, which included not only the position papers, but Chalcedon alerts and other uh, miscellaneous articles by Rashtuni. Here, and that only extended up to 1989, 65 to 89, his writings, here we had the position papers specifically all the way through to uh, when he stopped writing them. And it's a complete set that's fully indexed. Scriptural index, topical index, subject index, and a couple of more, um, author index, I think. So you can find anything about anything in this. And the indices are very, very thorough. So as a resource, they're tremendous. I imagine in a Kindle form, they'll be uh, fantastic. Uh, I'm a latecomer to the Kindle scenario because uh, I've used other uh, formats. And I suffer from what Gary North calls card syndrome I like to have a physical book in my hand nonetheless I can see the value of a a Kindle and the power of being able to bookmark things highlight things make your own notations and go back to them and so this volume is going to be stupendous if you don't have one you're going to want to get this Uh, it's going to end up being a a major work of Christian Reconstruction in informed faith and it is finished and 12,000 pounds of books were delivered from the publisher to Chalcedon's warehouse a few weeks back and being prepared for shipments. Andrea asks, do you think readers will get good ideas to focus on areas for us to further Christian reconstruction as a result of going through these papers? Well, that's kind of the point I bring out in the forward. They absolutely invite extension. The Kingdom of God is not about sitting on laurels of our previous theological generations. Uh, it's to build on that. And so these position papers are a foundation on which a structure must go up until the capstone is placed, and each of us has a part to play, and each of our children and grandchildren have a part to play in adding to the structure. That this book, these three volumes, does such a wonderful job of laying out for us. And yes, if you don't know your calling in Christ yet, get these volumes, and you'll find one. I mean, there's so many different topics touched, and if you can't, you know, if if you if it doesn't cover if this volume doesn't cover it the thing that you specialize in doesn't exist in all likelihood. It might be something like quantum physics or something. And I'll have something to say about quantum physics in Australia when I speak on the Christian reconstruction of the the physical sciences. Because there is everything to be said about all these areas of uh, thought. Every every thought captured to the beings of Christ, that's our mission. And this includes the hard sciences which are often as derelict as the the, uh, economic sciences, the political sciences, the social sciences are. uh, We need to have a paint with the widest possible brush. Why? Because Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm 119 says, I've seen an end to all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad, extends over everything. I believe that's the 96th verse, if I'm not mistaken. Psalm 119. And by the way, that's one of the great psalms to read on a regular basis. One, Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. Talk about symmetry. It's the longest psalm in the scripture. And it tells you something that David thought it was worth building a psalm, eight um, verses for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, 22 uh, times 8, because 176 verses. So it glories in the law of God. In the wonders of it, in the amazement of it, and why he weeps rivers of waters when it's broken. I'll give you this: to the abolitionists, they do weep rivers of waters because God's law is broken in respect to murder, and they're not willing to sit and on their hands about it. So, for their zeal, I give uh, full points. A lot of the friction, I think, we can work work things out possibly, but if we're certainly in a situation where Isaiah, uh, Hosea four eight applies there's going to be more friction and probably well-earned. So, yeah, the uh, bottom line is if you, this is an amazing resource because it lays out the foundations. Each one, like I said, he, he started... And, and think about this for a minute, how he approached this. He wrote one position paper first, and it's all he had was this one topic that he touched on. Then he wrote another one, and he might generate, you know, three or four or five a year, but span this over 30 plus years, and you have a whole bunch of ground being taken for Christ. You need to see it the same way. By the way, another point. Not only uh, is it that possible that you will look at and read this book and say, I want to build on his position, paper 27, on this topic, titanism, whatever it might end up being, or uh, number 50 on uh, incorporation, where he takes a different tack than a lot of folks do. Uh, and I happen to agree with Dr. Reshtoni on this, but be that as it may, uh, there's also the potential for space between these position papers where he might have planned to go there, but the Lord called him home before he was able to finish, or oh, he didn't have an, era, an area of um, strength there. We always want to write in areas of strength, not areas of weakness. I always say, I don't know if you don't know the answer, right? So he might not have been able to get around to something that he planned to do. So if you see this, well, there's a paper on this and a paper on that, but not a paper in between on X or a paper beyond this one over here. So maybe it's time time for you to write a position paper that fills in the hole. So it's not just a matter of finding something of his that you can build on top of, but also if you think his foundation could be wider, more power to you. Go ahead and widen it. So uh, any other uh, questions? Again, I have the highest recommendations for an in informed faith. I'm not sure if it's up on the website yet, um, but as soon as it is, I would get a copy. I believe there's going to be a pretty decent um, initial promotional deal for it. I think it'll be, if memory serves is 15% off with free shipping, and it's a heavy volume in three volumes. It's 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 big and it's beautiful and it's, it looks gorgeous. Ah, it's coming. <laughs> you know, it's always fun. Uh, I don't have the benefit of Bo snurdly in my ear. Mr. Snurley, what do you think? Well, I actually have to read the responses from, from my technical people here. And so the banter here is me reading in the middle of something. If they some, say something too funny, well, I'm in a serious uh, mode and that there comes that inappropriate use of uh, corporate humor, as we say. So, yes, it's coming, and I, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it's good for folks to get a hold of that volume, those three volumes. I don't think they're being broken up nor would you want to break them up I don't think because they're a complete swath cuts a wide swath through all areas of life and living and that's what makes it a powerful uh, th- trilogy it will be for Rush I think what Schilder's trilogy was about the crucifixion of Christ uh, a different approach but just as important and will have a long lasting impact uh, from everything that we can see because it's so badly needed due to the fact that we have a drought of the Word of God and its proper application these days. Three thumbs in a row. Either someone's got an itchy trigger finger or we have folks who approve what I'm saying. Do I have any other pending questions? Uh, I I never have a sense. I actually could have a sense for the time. We're about 51 minutes into our discussion. We usually... uh, That's correct. Uh, Our our technical editor points out the indices are in the third volume. (laughs) So if only by volume two you would not have the indexes. You wouldn't know how to find anything in it, except in general, in the sections that it's divided into. So definitely get the entire three volumes set. You see, this is a little different case than the Institutes of Biblical Law, where it would be um, possible to read volume one uh, and get volume three or two later. Uh, They each supplement each other. But in this case, it's a different bold, yeah. (laughs) Ah, yes, thank you, Gordon. I knew as much. So let me see, there's a pinned thing, and I'm only seeing part of it. Justin Ryan, would you still encourage a Reconstructionist to attend a local PCA or like, even due to the differences and due to the non-existent Reconstructionist churches? Or would home church be more effective uh, by listening to, and I mentioned the rest of the sentence is pretty clear, um, edifying lectures and things in this order. There comes a time uh, where the home church is important, and believe it or not, home church is Discussed in some of Dr. Rashtuni's uh, work, uh, we would like to have salt and light in the PCA churches, the OPC churches, uh, and in essence, we do have in many cases a um, what would I call it? Not a get-out-of-jail-free card, so much as um, a carte blanche to do that in some of the PCA churches. So there's there are theonomists and reconstructionists out there in the PCA, but. Each church is different. Some churches are very much no, no, no to the law of God, and we don't, we don't see it. Uh, and they might make it a referendum on, on theonomy at that point, and that that becomes problematic, doesn't it? So it depends on, on where you stand with in terms of your understanding of the Word of God and its application, and uh, your patience with the PCA church. If you're truly at the point where you're going to have to dust off your sandals, uh, it's regrettable but God may be starting a new work as a result of that. Uh, and be sure that it's not some other spiritual problem in your heart that is driving you, because uh, lots of folks have used theology as a pretext for some other reason. In the same way that a pastor might use theology as a pretext for some kind of personal um, agenda of his own, and he uh, cherry-picks his scripture to build his cherry pie, and does the same. So let's not fall in the same trap as, a, say, a wayward pastor who's dead set on being leased in the kingdom of heaven with the support of the law of God. Uh, let's make sure that we have a clear conscience when we form our own home churches. But uh, they certainly are forming. Perhaps more non-negotiable than, say, even that, would be support for homeschooling. If the pastor is going after you to tooth and nail, and and, and hammer and tongs, to try to get your kids in the public school, it's time to walk. I mean, that is, I would regard that as he wants to put your kids through the fire to Molech, and you need to be start a home church if that's the only alternative. So to me, that's a little bit stronger point than someone who's weak on the law of God. There, at least, you might be able to rise to a position where you can teach and have an influence and impact, as long as they're not impacting your family in an antinomian way. See, now you, you have to do twice the work, in essence. Now, there's a benefit to that, believe it or not. I I am always minded of what uh, Dr. Joe Moilcraft had to say. Why did he go? I think it was to Columbia Theological Seminary, a liberal school. Why would he do that? And he said, because I knew if I went to a conservative school, I would not be on my guard. I would pretty much accept what everyone was telling me because I trusted them. But if I went to Columbia, I would be on my guard for everything they taught, everything coming down the pike, I would have to be on my toes on because I knew I couldn't trust them, and it gave him a sense of vigilance and, and authority and command of the scriptures he would not have had, believe it or not, in a setting more friendly to his actual convictions. So sometimes there's a, a, a place where the, that sharpening process uh, in a negative environment can be of benefit to you. It, it can work something. But this is not for everybody. <laughs> we don't normally say, send your folks to the most compromised apostate uh, seminary you can dig up just because you'll be on your toes. But for some folks, it worked, and it worked wonderfully for Dr. Moorcraft. So, for him who has ears to hear, let him hear that. Let's see, I think a Mr. a mess question. Priscilla asks, What are your thoughts on Reconstructionists using the humanist court system for cases of murder, theft, rape, etc., where the biblical standards of determining truth or restitution are not followed? Well, of course, we have this problem, uh, the, uh, the wicked frame mischief using law. We're back to Psalm 94.20. And in the case of these the murder trials, uh, certainly only the state, the executive branch of government, the civil magistrate of, of Paul, has the authority to execute uh, for capital crimes, the only ones he can go to. Are they flawed? Yes. What do we need to do? We need to be salt and light and inform them and rebuild them. Why have they detached themselves from biblical law? Because the church led the charge away from the biblical, biblical law. And so, you, the, when we say that the culture is the report card of the church, the courts are also the report card of the church. They show our lawlessness as Christians by and large. So, when some of us are pushing back the Reconstructionists and saying no, the law of God is, uh, applies, everyone thinks that you know we've gone insane. But that's the only place where liberty and true law is going to be had. An alternative, of course, are church courts. Now, at the moment, church courts are much worse than the secular courts. You'd be out of your mind to go to a church court. You run the other direction, solve your problem in the state court, and then come back to the church. Uh, sadly, that's true, but there are so many cases of this. Uh, Dr. Rashtuni, I think, had a litany of them, and he mentioned several of those in his book, "A Cure of Souls, you know, his book on Christian counseling, if you will. Uh, and so, But there was a the time when it was not so. There was a time in the early centuries of the church where people avoided the Roman courts and went to the church courts where they got justice. And until we proclaim the law of God again, that won't happen. So you have to start building new foundations, right? We've said this over and over again. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? From Psalm 11. And our obligation is to raise up the foundations of many generations. Isaiah 58:12. And foundation building is the ugly work. That's why in Informed Faith, that three-volume set that just came out, is huge because it's all about the foundations. And it's a profound, powerful work, and it'll really put uh, some legs under you. So they don't follow biblical standards, but when do the church courts do that? So where do we find it? We have to find it outside of the institutional church and the institutional courts sometimes, or you might have to simply take your lumps, uh, or consider the teaching of Paul about not going before the, the heathen for judgment. Uh, John Andrew Wiesner following up on the question about church. Maybe you could attend one of those churches, but not take any oaths. These are um, uh, fellowship covenants or to belong, or membership covenants. These have have a long history, uh, and they're problematic. I remember uh, a church I was involved with in the early 80s, and uh, a church covenant was assembled for the families to sign, and there was nothing intrinsically wrong with the covenant at all. it was very theonomic and Reconstructionist. But Verna Hall, Verna J. Hall, who was a uh, co-worker of Rush Tunis at the Volker Fund in the early 60s, uh, has something to say about this whole area because she uh, is a historical uh, co-leader. She assembles and compiles historical sources and is a tremendous historical researcher. And she said, your problem is you're not ready. You don't have the character to enter into covenant yet. This kind of stuff takes decades and generations to build up character to be covenant-keeping. So to so you're jumping the gun, in effect. So there's a whole other area about the notion of a church covenant that hasn't even been looked at. It's like, this is a great idea, let's jump in with both feet. And there's a position that says that's not quite how it works. Uh, and there's a tremendous history to prove that it fails uh, rather resoundingly when uh, a shallow approach is taken to it. So whatever its benefits and negatives are, jumping in without having the character to be a covenant keeper and and do these things is a problem. So at that point, yeah. uh, And a rash oath is always a problem, isn't it, John Andrew? Because uh, scripture forbids making of rash oaths and is full of examples of folks who have done it. And so we we don't. Because then what happens, you're in the Psalm 154 case, right? A man has to keep his word even to his own hurt. And that's... That's not a good thing. Joshua ended up ended up in a rash oath, even though he was deceived into it. The oath, because it was made in Jehovah's name, had authority, and he could not break the oath with the Gibeonites. And when Saul did break the oath, there was a famine and a drought on Israel for three whole years until it was resolved in uh, the case that uh, David undertook judgment for. And still to this day, I find it shocking that David waited three whole years before talking to God in prayer about why is there a drought. <laughs> Some people just wait. And there was a message that popped up. Maybe that was it. Yeah, cure souls. OK, I guess we're done for the week. Everyone, um, I think, uh, pray for safe travel for Mark when he gets back. And we look forward to the Q&As. will be very interesting again. Uh, I always appreciate this opportunity to be with you all. Appreciate your support for Calcedon's ministry. That's why I volunteer my time for them. I believe in the message and hope you do too. Take care all. God bless.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Selbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology.